This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Twenty-five years ago, President Bill Clinton signed the Family and Medical Leave Act. It's not official in Washington until there's an acronym, so for the purposes of this conversation, we'll call it the FMLA. And that law actually included a provision giving eligible workers 12 weeks of unpaid leave to care for a new child. But a lot of the emphasis and scrutiny that followed suit, regardless of your politics, Democrat or Republican or otherwise, actually focused on that term, unpaid. The United States remains the only country in the developed industrialized world that doesn't mandate that employers offer paid leave for new mothers or new fathers and new families in general, according to the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. New mothers in Finland, for example, or even Norway, are entitled up to three years worth of paid leave, meaning that they're able to take time off to care for their families while also still earning a paycheck from the companies that employ them. In Norway, for example, young parents get up to 91 weeks, and the United Kingdom grants new mothers and fathers up to 39 weeks, while our neighbors up to the north in Canada actually give young families one year. There's no doubt that economic vitality in any country around the globe is based on being able to build a new workforce, build strong families, build and create and nurture the right environments for cognitive development. And all of that rests on the very expensive proposition of providing the right conditions of raising a child. By some statistics, it costs more than $233,000 to raise the typical child or average child based on socioeconomic averages from birth to age 18 in the U.S. The Agricultural Department of the U.S. also estimates that that works out to be around thirteen grand per kid per year. The expensive nature of child rearing is not new, but if you compound those expenses with the fact that younger kids, including infants and toddlers, require a lot of intensive hands-on care, this usually means that in the early years, someone has to take time off. And oftentimes, the realities of childbirth and the physiological abilities for mothers to care with everything from breastfeeding to other uh, aspects of, of child rearing in terms of close proximity tends to mean that disproportionately in America, the nuclear family leans that responsibility onto women. But putting gender aside, the fact is that whether you're a young father, a young mother, maybe even a guardian, aunt, or cousin that's taking care of a newborn or a young kid, for heads of household headed by single families, that drop in financial coverage is even more drastic, meaning that 42% at the time of childbirth actually decrease happenings in the months prior because of a pregnancy-related reductions in hours worked. The families doing the crucial work of keeping the economy spinning, keeping families alive, and making sure that their own well-beings and then their next generation is touted with the right skills necessary to engage the world comes at a tremendous cost. So if every other rich, developed, industrialized nation in the world has determined that it's in their best interest to help keep these families afloat and provide them with the resources and tools that they need in their time of need, how come the United States hasn't kept pace? This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Katie Bethel is the founder and executive director of PLUS and one of Fortune's 2018 world's greatest leaders with 15 years of public policy and issue advocacy experience in the United States. Having advocated for paid family leave policies for all families by 2022, she is globally recognized as one of the first campaign directors to not only engage the U.S. government in the need to create more robust paid family leave policies, but also galvanizing private sector action to ensure that when the government may not act, that individual corporations are doing their best to ensure that families can stay afloat. Katie, thank you so much for joining American Enough. Thank you. What a thorough overview. That was great. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you know, so I want to I want to start with 
um, giving our listeners a better understanding of what your organization does on a day-to-day. But um, I kind of want to start with maybe the more sinister reason or cynical reason why some have claimed within the U.S. that new paid mandatory leave policies for America uh, may not necessarily work. You know, some some have called it everything from a new national entitlement, which in, in, in politics can sometimes be um, synonymous with just more expenses for the U.S. government to run up a debt. Others have called it a burden on small business, and and others have have called it a decision best left to the employer, not for the government to intervene. And and I'm curious, based off of all of your advocacy um, to create a more robust uh, protection for paid leave and all of the critiques that you've seen along the way, how come it's the American process that's sort of gotten gummed up in this inertia of trying to figure out what the best way to proceed is, while other countries around the world have seemingly all kind of arrived around one common conclusion about protecting the household and protecting young families? Ooh, that's a big one. Um, let me let me break that up just a little bit. So um, first off, I think we should be clear that what we're talking about isn't actually a business mandate that businesses pay employees. What we're talking about is um, a, say, the same kind of policy that they have in many other countries, which is a social insurance program. So imagine the same way that social security or unemployment insurance work. Um, it's really about socializing the cost of, chi- of having and raising a child, having and raising a family um, by using the, the biggest uh, solution we have for doing that by using the government to run that kind of program. Um, so when we talk about sort of business concerns, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that this is something that businesses would pay for, that those those companies in, in Finland that are giving people three years of time off are paying salaries during that time, and, that, and that's not the case. Um, it's really uh, something that's run out of the government, which is really important. I mean, that's that's the way, that's what government is for, is sort of crowdfunding um, these sorts of expenses. So I think when we sort of step back and look at what paid family leave is, um, one of the things, one of the ways to think about it is it's for the times when things fall apart in your family. And those times are you welcome a new child, um, you have a serious medical condition or illness yourself, um, like need heart surgery or fighting cancer, or you need to support someone in your family who has that same, that same sort of challenge. Um, and what businesses and the public need to understand is that because we are human beings doing human stuff and having human bodies, these are problems that America already has. And the place that we're behind is in finding these solutions, finding the solution in paid family leave, and really leveraging the power of government um, to support the fact that we are all human beings with human bodies um, that need to work and have babies. Um, So I can talk about, uh, I'll pause there, but what I can talk about next is um, sort of the historical underpinnings of why the U.S. doesn't have this when everyone else does. Um, is that a helpful place to go? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and actually, it's it's a uh, um, as you dive into that, it is important to note. And I may have incorrectly um, implied this in the introduction that other countries, for instance, when they um, when they they have actually decided to to cover those costs, um, it, it may not be the company alone that's paying uh, or, or covering the, the the salary during that period. But if the government is doing so, that obviously implies that the government is making a very concerted public policy decision that that is worth their taxpayer dollars and that is worth the you know the quote unquote entitlement critique. So against that backdrop, yeah, I'd love to hear more about what what has precluded America from from bear hugging the same approach. Yeah, totally. So um, I, this is a question that I asked myself um, when I was really putting together the concept and the strategy for PLUS, um, the national campaign to win paid family leave by 2022. Um, I, you know, if you're going to try to win something by 2022, the question is like, why haven't we won so far? Um, and what I learned was really interesting. So um, it all goes back to World War II. Um, and at the end of World War II, in Europe, they were doing reconstruction. Um, a lot of men had died. Uh, the economy was falling apart. Um, and so they needed the remaining population in the post-World War II era to be able to do two things. Um, they wanted people to have children 
to rebuild the population, and they wanted people to work to rebuild the economy. Um, and the people who were left were women. Um, and so policies like healthcare, childcare, paid family leave, these policies were actually part of a package of economic stimulus in the post-World War II era in Europe. Um, in the U.S., um, we told a different story at the end of World War II. Um, you look at all of the sort of boys coming home um, narrative that was coming out of the government at the time are like predominantly like very traditional white men led government. Um, they were telling women go back home. And this is of course, largely white women. Um, women of color have been in the workplace this entire time. Um, but the, the sort of narrative driven by the government that informed policy decision-making was women need to go back home. Men need to come back to jobs. Women need to be having babies and men are gonna support them with their single income, um, highly paid good jobs that, soldiers, um, that the soldiers deserve. So this was the post-World War II policymaking that we had in Europe. It was the post-World War II um, public cultural narrative that we had. And it's a stark contrast, what we had in Europe. And as a result, we didn't put those policies in place um, and continue to not have those policies in place. And really, um, I think in terms of the, the policy narrative to put things like paid family leave in a bucket, uh, in the wrong bucket, we put them in the bucket of um, support for women rather than the bucket that they're put in in Europe, which is really about the deep economic underpinnings of society and how we enable people to serve um, these two needs that we have as a society, which is to, to have a population of um, healthy children and families um, and also to be working in day-to-day -day jobs that fuel the economy um, now. And that that's a fascinating distinction in terms of prioritizing, you know, from a public policy stance, the investment in in mothers or young parents or families versus economic certainty and upward mobility for an overall nation. Do you see it as as pluses your your organization's role to try and catalyze momentum to simply create a policy shift for the United States, point blank, full stop, or do you see part of its own mandate for your organization to actually try and shift the the very uh, ethos around what we're trying to in safeguard here, which is well beyond the family and more about economic competitiveness for the nation? I mean, there there's a great sort of pithy quote about this, which is that politics is downstream of culture. So what we're going to, if we want to win high quality paid family leave policy, we need to make sure that the cultural conversation um, is centered in the right place and based on what the evidence shows us is necessary to solve the problems we're trying to solve. Um, so if you look at just the difference in the kinds of policies that are being proposed by Democrats versus Republicans, Democrats having um I think a different perspective about the role of women in the workplace overall, Republicans having these sort of more traditional values, Republicans are putting forward paid family leave proposals, and they are putting forward paid family leave proposals, which is huge, that focus just on parental leave, that tend to be based on this idea of a, a heterosexual two-parent family, um, that tend to be based on the idea of men still being the primary breadwinners, whereas you look at the policies um, that Democrats are putting forward and that have passed um, in six states now in the District of Columbia, they're based on a much broader idea of family, a much um, more in-depth understanding of the different complexities of family. They allow for single-parent families and adoption. Um, they're looking at caregiving by people beyond just the parents, by grandparents. Um, and so I think for PLUS, what we've really been focused on is what what is the culture we need to create so that the downstream politics results in smart policy. And one of the ways that we've done that is through our focus on low-wage workers. So we do um, a report every year about the paid leave policies of the six, 70 largest employers in the country, largest private employers in the country. Um, and what we found the first year we did that was that um, all these companies that were saying, we have great parental leave policies, we're talking about the people in the executive office. Um, Starbucks, for example, 
had a paid leave policy that only applied to 3% of their total workforce and really left out a lot, all, all of the retail staff that they were looking at, that they employed. Um, and so we started a process of really first gathering data, then educating reporters about the right questions to ask when a company announces a new policy and really changed the narrative about paid family leave from this is something that women in the executive suite need in order to have it all to this is something that everybody working in America needs and deserves because family is at the center of the security of our country and because the babies of people working in um, of people working at the cash register deserve the same time with their parents as the babies of people working in the executive office. So that's one example of how that transition is really important. And the way that that plays out in policy is if you're focused specifically on what people earning lower wages need, then you start to understand that public policy needs to especially address people at the lower end, which means that at the things like wage replacement, which is really what paid leave is about, right? It's like, I can't work. I still need to get a paycheck for this period of time to bridge me over this time of crisis in my family. Um, what you see is that people at the lower end of the wage scale can't afford to live on half of their salary. So um, this public policy idea that we can give people partial wage replacement, sure, that works for people in the executive suite. They're one of the one out of five people in America that has a savings account, right? Um, but for those other four out of five, we have to look at policy solutions that reflect the reality of Americans' lives. I, I want to double click a little bit on on the data that you mentioned, the annual data set that Plus releases. Um, you recently released uh, another cut of data um, at the end of 2018 that that highlighted a lot of momentum in the advocacy that um, that Plus has been doing, but also momentum that that should make uh, you know 2019 seem like a, a glimmer of hope for for catalyzing even further change. I believe, but uh, some of that data included uh, 20 new companies, uh, many. Uh, that are household names in terms of corporate brands enacted paid leave policies within the last year of 2018. Um, more, as you just mentioned, more more dads, more fathers, as well as low wage workers have access paid leave policies um, now than ever before. And that top employers, Fortune 100 to 500 um, companies, are even calling more audibly and publicly for exact shifts um, in the public policies that you just spoke to when it comes to either you know new parental leave approaches or an expansion of FMLA. Uh, I'm curious from your perspective, what exactly is driving this momentum? I, I certainly want to applaud your advocacy and your leadership at PLUS, um, but when you when you see almost across the board universal progress and gains in this space from new employers to kind of incumbent employers to even low-wage workers, one might ask, is 2019 the year that America finally uh, gets its act together, so to speak, and enacts sort of sweeping changes across the board? Or have you found that incremental shift can be incremental shifts, sorry, can be realized if you nudge the behavior and practice of individual private sector actors, regardless of whether the government leans in? I mean, we know that paid family leave will not be accessible to everyone in America unless we have national public policy. We've had, the private sector has had 25 years um, to build on top of the FMLA that you mentioned at the top of this conversation um, with paid policies. And in 25 years, we now have, we still have 85% of Americans without paid family leave. So I think when we, the importance of the momentum in the private sector that is very real and very exciting um, is really about a couple things. So first, I think the drivers of that um, momentum, I, I think of three things. Um, one is, of course, the public pressure that we've been able to put on those companies that I've talked about. Um, the second is the state victories that's been driven by um, a lot of different organizations all over the country sort of banding together in this loose and exciting coalition. Um, what businesses 
feel when they operate in multiple states that have different paid leave policies is a desire to have one universal policy that they can apply equally across all their employees. So the momentum in the states really does have an impact on private sector practices. Um, and then the third thing is this rapidly changing labor market. Like the labor market for even workers at the lower end of the wage scale um, is tight. Um, there, there are more jobs than people right now um, in many instances. And so companies are in a much more competitive environment to recruit the staff that they need for their companies to operate. Um, and I think that that has created a space where they're looking for new solutions of ways to make their workplaces more attractive. Um, that momentum that we're seeing in the private sector um, is, is absolutely critical to seeing public policy move. And a little vignette about that is that when um, Senator Cassidy out of Louisiana called the first um, Senate Finance Committee hearing about paid family leave this last July, um, we were there, we were in the room, and his, in his opening remarks when he was talking about why we're talking about this issue, and I think also indirectly saying why are Republicans talking about this issue. Um, so all of that adds up to a moment where in 2019, I think we're going to see a lot of examination, both of paid family leave and about the sort of broader workplace policies um, that we have in the U.S. and how do we make sure that anybody who's working in America has the protections that are necessary um, to make sure that they're also able to do the very important work of having and supporting a family. So that that you you bring up um, two great points that I think we're drilling into. One is you know the the nature of the economy, where unemployment rate is right now, where the unemployment rate is right now, and where uh, our labor force participation rates are right now. Um, and then the second was sort of congressional engagement and action around this. I want to start on on the former uh, uh, first, and and I'm curious. You know, right now it does seem that not only are are companies. Uh, you know, working their best to make sure that they have the most attractive environments with the best suite of benefits um, that are able to, you know, attract talent, retain talent, create nurturing environments. Um, but at the same time, uh, you also see this administration and, and several economists point to the fact that our economy and our employment rates have, have never really been stronger um, and that, you know, there are a lot of opportunities out there, um, even if, they, you know, some will associate that with a gap in skills required to take those jobs. Um, if you accept those premises, uh, how come we, we wouldn't then see almost near universal um, allure or engagement across the board for all companies to kind of want to race to the race to the top in creating, you know, first class rock star type packages when it comes to parental leave policies, whereas there still seems to be, you know, a relatively big delta between what maybe Google might offer versus what um, Starbucks might offer versus what McDonald's might offer. I I'm curious in terms of these range of businesses and like the growth of the economy, do you think the health of the economy can continue to push companies to act or be even better actors? Um, or do you think I'm confounding sort of the health of the economy and the willingness of a corporation to even lean in here? Cool. Let me think on that for a second. I think that each business, I mean, we talk to a lot of business leaders um, and I run, you know, my own small nonprofit. And I think the, the state of the economy is probably it's all, certainly always in the back of my mind as a, as a business leader, but I think also um, in, in the back of the minds of most business leaders, I, I don't know that it's like the driving force behind the way that you decide to run a business, though. Um, and when you look at the at Fortune 500 companies and these sort of 70 largest employers, the things that are making them decide to have paid family leave um, are, are, they're about competitiveness, they're about attracting a high quality workforce. Um, they're not really thinking about like a, a national economy when they're making those decisions. And if we we added up all of the um, how sort of how many people work at the 70 largest employers, and I think in the U.S. and I think what we tallied was around 14 million. That's one percent of the workforce in America. So an employer by employer approach, no matter how 
um, how ambitious, how much the economy is driving that is just, it's probably the most incremental, um, least likely to succeed strategy possible um, for making sure that this is something that's available to everyone, especially when you look at um, a really important trend and growing trend that we're seeing in the workforce in, in the job market, which is this move towards subcontractors, independent contractors, um, sort of work that isn't attached to a particular um, job with benefits. Um, as the number of jobs is increasing, the number of jobs with benefits is not increasing. Um, so there's a real challenge we have in this sort of modern, um, modern job market where employers just aren't providing the same sort of benefits to the same number of employees. Um, as we would have expected in the past. Yeah, that's a really important point because I think you're absolutely right and it makes sense if you're an executive or if you you know respond to shareholders or if you're even a privately held startup that's responding to you know your own board members, um, you have a fiduciary obligation uh, and responsibility to seeing an ROI on any investments going in and you're looking at your exactly. ability to compete, not necessarily you know the greater good of our overall you know safety net for the economy. Um, but as as you mentioned, as yeah. the nature of work changes a bit, and I believe that um, Trump's U.S. Department of Labor this year through the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out uh, new data sets in terms of how many workers are working along the lines that you mentioned of more contingent work or independent work or when you integrate, you know, the app economy, what's colloquially known as more gig work through, you know, driving for, for Uber or working for TaskRabbit or things like that. Um, if you take that and then you sort of pair this notion of um, the prospect of automation uh, depending on whose estimates you look at, I believe on 60 Minutes this past Sunday, um, a, a formidable voice on AI mentioned that nearly uh, 33 to 40% of jobs can be impacted by automation. It sort of begs the question that as companies and as executives and private sector actors continue to invest in their products, and you know they are not elected representatives of the United States, so they're going to continue to only invest in their products, they are shifting and begging the question of the changing nature of work. And if work is evolving, do they then also have a responsibility to address how we create a, a suite of benefits that reflects the modern way that we live and work? And I ask you this, not necessarily to opine on, you know, what the CEO of today or tomorrow needs to be focusing on as, you know, a statesman or stateswoman on these issues, but because Plus specifically uh, works with a lot of private actors and a lot of uh, uh, large companies and their CEOs to try and, and galvanize this sort of change that, as you said, is only incremental at the private level, but is certainly critical for, for large swaths of the American workforce. So I'm just kind of curious as you see this evolving nature of work and the kind of you know topic du jour to talk about the future of work, um, does the private sector ha have a responsibility or maybe even have a role in trying to address how you create a modern safety net to catch those that are working in these disparate or different ways? Yeah, uh, the private sector absolutely has a role to play and a responsibility. Uh, what we, the, the term of art here um, at least in, in investor circles, is human capital management. Um, so when we, Deloitte, for example, is a strong supporter of paid family leave, both within their own company and an advocate for public policy. They spoke at that hearing I mentioned in July about um, the need for national paid family leave policy. And I think uh, human capital management is basically the idea that human brains and bodies are a resource that we use to create value in a company. And the reason one could argue that we have benefits um, is because uh, they allow us to make sure that the humans that are helping us to create capital um, are healthy and happy and strong and productive, right? Um, as fewer and fewer people are working as a part of a firm that has their eye on that, um, there's this big gap in America where that sort of human capital management, that idea that our people are an important resource that needs to be protected and managed, um, needs to also grow as a matter of public policy. Um, and a small like microcosm of this is we actually work with a circle of investors, high-level investors, um, 
who see the importance of effectively supporting um, people in being healthy and productive in the workplace. And so have actually filed shareholder resolutions um, at companies like Walmart and Starbucks and CVS, um, these major, major highly visible companies saying, look, like we as investors are concerned about a lack of family leave policy because it suggests that you're not actually managing your human capital appropriately. Um, and so I think when we look at how the federal government needs to run and the role of the federal government, um, looking at sort of a macroeconomic level, our people are our greatest resource and paid family leave um, is a policy that helps our people be the most productive members of society that they can be, which is good for the economy at large, and also a real service and support to the millions of smaller employers um, that need to also support their employees, but maybe don't have the capital as a firm themselves to have that kind of policy in place. That's something that we hear from small business owners all the time. It reflects my own experience in the organization I run in California, which is one of the states that has a paid family leave policy in place. When I have people go out on family leave, um, the state of California, through their insurance program, underwrites the cost of their salary. And that allows me to give a generous benefit that's competitive with the larger employers in my state, like Google and Facebook, um, and also make sure that those employees are healthy and happy and able to come back to work fully recovered from childbirth or from a medical crisis. Um, so that's kind of how I see those things weaving together. Um, and I got a little philosophical there, but I hope that made some sense. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that, that that's perfectly helpful because I think that there are, as we mentioned a few moments ago, there are sort of two big variables in this equation, right? One is private sector action and, you know, kudos to your work because a lot of companies, as we've talked about at the top, have really leaned into to try and uh, create these, uh, you know, policies that work for them and work for their workforce. Um, but there is also, I think, especially as much of the country has an eye towards tech companies and their sort of ability to scale um, software and workforces, you know, whether it's through independent work or otherwise almost overnight, um, taking a look at what their responsibility might be and continue to be moving forward is going to be, you know, a critical part of the operation. Uh, but I think, as you mentioned earlier, those gains, however meaningful and important, um, are incremental and they don't necessarily nudge the, um, or, or steer the rudder of, of the broader ship of the United States' overall policy until the government acts. And I think the government um, is the the other sort of uh, not only gorilla in the room, but, but cr critical variable in this regard. You know, last year in 2018, we saw a number of bills being introduced uh, on uh, paid leave policies. We had New York's uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, um, Democrat from New York, introduced language that would actually try and create a, a government-funded approach to this. We saw um, Republican Senator from Nebraska, Deb Fischer, uh, introduce bills that would um, create a bit more of a, a tax credit-type environment for, for those employers that create uh, paid leave policies. Um, and then we, more notably... Um, we had uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio um, introduce a bill, and I, and I say this notably only because it was heavily lauded uh, by our president's uh, daughter and senior advisor to the White House, Ivanka Trump, for, for creating a mechanism in which people could tap into their Social Security savings a bit early to help cover their needs as they um, you know, raise their families as young parents. Uh, all of those ideas, regardless, you know, stepping aside from the merits of each argument and sort of the fiscal impact that each would have have, um, they do signal this rising tide of bipartisan engagement um, some, from some fairly notable and visible faces in the public policy apparatus of, of our current Congress and our current administration. Um, I'm curious how PLUS views the introduction of these bills, kind of just from the, the politics of having momentum and really trying to stir up a national conversation, um, as you said, 25 years after the fact that FMLA passed. But I'm also curious that none of these seem to adhere to what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend, which is you know a, an approximate timeline of four to six months, four to six months of a of a young parent engaging and nurturing and being there for their child. Um, so, kind of those two broad questions: How do you feel about this legislative momentum, and do you expect to see more of it in, in this year in this new Congress? And two, how do you square the fact that while everyone is trying and it's important to applaud that trying, they don't seem to measure up to um, what 
broader uh, consensus might be among the the uh, physician community and the health community in terms of w- how long a parent needs to be at home? So the momentum is extremely exciting. Um, the The fact of Republican proposals on this issue speaks in a very powerful way to to the possibility of really getting something done here. Um, I, I mean, the night of the midterms, for example, uh, the talking heads talking about the results as they were coming in. We had Rick, um, we had Rick Santorum and Van Jones agreeing that paid family leave is something that a divided Congress could get done. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's huge. That's so, huge. Like this is a very big deal and very exciting, and um, I hope to see that momentum continue. And I think the direction that that we're going to be pushing that momentum to go is really around the evidence um, and focusing on the people who need family leave most. I mean, one of the most memorable moments for me in 2018 was when we brought um, one of the leaders of the work that we did with Walmart, um, Gigi, we brought her to the halls of Congress to listen to this um, hearing about paid family leave. And at the end of the hearing, I asked her what she thought. And she said, you know, there's this where am I in this conversation? There's nobody here who looks like me. There's nobody here who's had my experience. Um, And that makes me really angry. And it makes me want to fight. And that's the question that we're going to be asking every single day is not just where are um, the people who need family leave most, but here they are. We've brought them to you. And this is what they have to say. Um, and the kind of policy that we know we need, both from the evidence, the medical evidence, the economic evidence, and the lived experiences um, of people who are working in, in these, you know, no benefits and, and low wage jobs, is they need up to six months of time off. Um, that's up to, a lot of times I say six months, people are like, everybody's going to take six months. Like, no, you, you take what you need. Um, People at the lowest end of the wage scale need 100% wage replacement. Um, We need to see this as a public insurance program. So things like tax credits, things like borrowing from Social Security, we know that these things don't work. And the model that's worked in all six states that have family leave and the District of Columbia is a social insurance model. And then finally, it needs to apply to all types of care and all types of work. Um, And that's where we get to the sort of future of work stuff that we've been talking about Plus is working with the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality right now um, to put together a white paper that shows in great, um, as only policymakers would desire, detail, um, (laughs) the how and why of those four principles. And we're hoping to see those principles um, emerge as a part of the amendment process as um, the Family Act and the other proposals that are being put forward, move through, especially the House, but also are taken up in the Senate in 2019. And and for, for the way in which you articulated that, um, I think it's really, really important to understand that even if we do see continued uh, momentum around these three legislative proposals uh, or brand new ones offered in the 116th Congress, uh, the voice of the parent, of the family members themselves, um, those that are you know not only working hard to to advance their their own collective prospects um, and seek their own opportunities, but also make sure that their children and their little ones um, are able to grow up in the right environment, have access to the right resources, and, and really not allow the, the false choice or trade-off of having to choose between putting food on the table for a little one and having um, you know coverage, parental care, versus paying for other bills in the household. All of that really requires keeping their voice central to these conversations. And I, I can only imagine the countless number of times that you've spoken um, with family members that have um, butted up against you know more challenging and difficult paid leave policies, uh, but how do we continue to make sure that their voice remains central to this conversation? I know you just mentioned that PLUS makes it a point to encourage those voices um, to be front and center if there are hearings, if there's uh, you know media availabilities, if there's broader kind of public campaigns around them. But you know, as a citizen and an arm's length observer of, say, the Gillibrand comp- uh, proposal, the Fisher proposal, the Rubio proposal, the, the conversation immediately seemed to, to devolve to coverage around, you know, 
can we actually use payroll taxes for this effort or will that run up the deficit? Can we use tax credits um, or give tax credits to employers or will that be sufficiently you know, budget neutral? Um, can we you know, involve Social Security withdrawals but maybe really skirt the issue of expanding FMLA to have more coverage? All of those really quickly come to policy conversations. And I'm not naive to the point to, to, to not want to look into that. We obviously have to understand that. And if there's any proposal that hits the budget of the United States, then um, even the Congressional Budget Office will have to do appropriate fiscal scoring and analysis around it. Uh, but all of these discussions seem to to bring out the oxygen uh, of, of the, the young mother, the young father that's really hit, or the low-wage worker that PLUS has spent so much time advocating and going to bat for. How do we make sure that as a country in this year's conversations around parental leave, that the voice of the voiceless remains front and center? So let, let's be real for a second. One of the main reasons that paid leave is emerging in the political sphere is that its polling is off the charts. Like when people talk about paid family leave, they win. Um, we know that from our 2018 Champions Program, um, where we endorsed um, <clears throat> net, 28 of our endorsed candidates are now um, sitting down in the halls of Congress ready to fight for paid family leave. Um, the polling numbers, it's 80, over 80% nationally, and it pulls over two-thirds support on the Republican side. Wow. So this polit politicians are engaging this issue because it's popular, and they are missing a huge opportunity if they leave the public conversation in the policy wonky space. When I talk to regular people who are thinking about paid family leave, the two words that come up most often are dignity and respect. Um, this is an issue that gets to the core identity of every single person in America because it's about how you take care of your family and how your government supports you and trusts you and believes in you to be a person who can take care of your family. So every single person working on this issue can and should be putting the people who are most affected by the lack of family leave, the people who are part of the one in four women who are returning to work within two weeks of giving birth, um, who are part of the one in five Americans who have another part-time job, which is taking care of a seriously ill family member. Like these, this is a huge issue that touches the lives of every American. And the more we can talk about the dignity and respect that are conveyed and offered by a paid leave policy, the more successful we're gonna be in both designing effective policy and in using the momentum and success of that policy um, as a way to grow support within the American public. And and that's a, to, to understand that, the political saliency of that and like the importance of, of what is creating this popularity, um, I think one may actually um, take a look to the leadership that, that you guys have offered at Plus, um, taking a look at how you balance those pro-growth kind of business arguments, as well as pro-worker protections, as well as pro-family protections, um, will very much be core to that conversation. I, I'm curious, and I know this this might be a little too on the nose, but um, from, from your organization's perspective, given that momentum and public support has sort of swelled in the direction that it, that it has, um, I anticipate that not only will these legislative conversations continue within this uh, new Congress, but we can probably expect um, a good chunk of presidential politics to touch this as well as, you know, when we go into nominating conventions for both the Republicans and Democratic parties, um, platform positions being staked out around these principles. Um, as you go, as we, you know, quickly run into what's quite uh, absurd to think that the 2020 cycle starts now since we just finished the midterms, but as we run into to that, that timeline, how does an organization like yours continue to sort of keep a steady eye on the policies it wants to see enacted while also balancing the, the, the obvious need to try your best to inform um, the way that this is discussed uh, in the presidential conversations? I mean, our campaign has three basic components. It's people, policy, and politics. Um, and so what we're going to see in 2019 is we are engaging um, people from a huge array of experiences of business 
and family um, in in America. So that looks like people like Gigi, who works at Walmart and is part of our fight to win change in the private sector, the investors I talked about, cultural leaders. Um, we just learned that the most trusted voice on fatherhood in America is The Rock. Um, and so <laughs> we're like, we're trying to get to him right now. Um, cause wouldn't that be awesome to have the rocks talking about paid family leave, um, for policy, it's about moving forward, um, and socializing the evidence-based principles of good policy that we know from the work that's happened in the States, the work that's happened around the world, economists and doctors, and then politics. And from now until the 2020 election, politics are all about the presidential race, the Democratic primary, what's going to happen on the Republican side. Um, and so we are right now it, building and engaging the network that's going to be informing all of those candidates about this issue um, and making it a top priority issue for 2020. And and for for from your perspective, I guess the the evolution um, of of how we've seen momentum around these issues um, has been incredibly promising. Uh, at the same time, I think it might leave many guests wondering uh, how the United States can continue to to be in this this space um, when we continue to talk about the need to to design an economy and design a workforce for the 21st century. I, I know we mentioned this briefly um, earlier in the conversation, um, but it, it anytime you, you read an article uh, about the state of play, about family leave policies in the U.S., there's always a sharp juxtaposition um, when it comes to what other countries are doing. And you very helpfully laid out um, both the policy frame as well as the, you know, lack of a better term, the messaging frame in which the United States has thought about this since the conclusion of World War II. Um, but for those that might be uh, political observers or, you know, fa pro-family values observers overseas that, that take a look at the United States and sort of maybe wonder why we're moving at the pace that we are, um, what would your response be to those, those naysayers that say the United States hasn't moved fast enough? Well, the United States hasn't moved fast enough. And this is our moment to do that. And I think, um, I think it's a mistake to view paid leave policy or really any of the policies um, that are about empowering um, our nation to have both strong families and a strong workforce. I think viewing those as, as the U.S. catching up is really missing a big opportunity. What we have is a dynamic and rapidly changing now um, in terms of our workforce and economy and the opportunity to design um, policy that is informed by what others have done um, but really solves today's challenges. Um, gig economy workers being sort of really emblematic of what that opportunity and challenge looks like. And so I, I think it would be a mistake to say, oh, what, what, what the U.S. needs to do is exactly what's being done in XYZ Europe, European country. Um, I think what the U.S. needs to do is make really smart policy for ourselves that's um, informed by best practices, but really solving the problems that we uniquely have here. Uh, and I think that we have the momentum, we have the desire to do that. And you can see that in the growing outcry about women's equality, racial justice in America. You see that in the outcry about overall inequality, the call for fair wages. Like all of this is part of a broad movement, um, primordial soup that I, I think will lead to some very exciting um, policy solutions in the years to come. And for, for anyone that broadly wonders um, how you view uh, America's identity as a nation that is still marching towards progress in this space, um, do you think that based off of where we are or where we're, we're set to go, um, that America's pol public policy um, has actively tried to uh, create a, a kind of pro-family environment? Or do you think that the, the state of play of our progress has meant that it's an, an active undercutting of investment in the American family? Cool. That's a big question. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think family is an important, if not one of the most important words in political discourse today. And I think that it means 
um, important and sometimes polarizing things um, to to Americans, um, sort of writ large, and that that presents a huge opportunity where if we can, and I think we can through paid leave um, as a front and center issue, if we can articulate a vision for what it looks like to empower families to be and become their very best um, sort of selves and foundation of American society, then I think we've found a really exciting bridge building pathway to transformational policy. Um, and that's our both our challenge and our opportunity. I mean, we've seen family be very divisive um, as a concept in other issues. And, um, you know, that, that when they say, I mean, this is a, a, a sword that we can pick up and carry forward. And I can't imagine a more exciting opportunity than the opportunity to articulate to the American people, we support family. This is what family support looks like. Um, it can be informed by a desire and value um, that many, many Americans share around the ability to carve your own destiny while also being based in the reality of the experiences that all families have, like the arrival of a child, um, the need to take care of a parent, um, or a serious illness in the family. And I think that when you combine sort of the the factors of having numerous presidential hopeful, hopefuls speak to these issues, um, a lot of the momentum as the data that, that Plus released in, in December speak to the progress of these issues. Um, and as you said, a lot of momentum at the legislative level, um, really trying to challenge where we are today, combined with all of the advocacy that, that Plus has advanced in this space, it does seem like 2019 is the, the optimal moment in time in our history as a nation to, to really continue that investment in the American family. So thank you so much, Katie, for, for your advocacy and for the entire Plus team's work on this space. And thank you for joining American Enough. Thank you for having me. Um, folks can get involved with Plus by going to paidleave.us. Um, lots of ways to get involved and we can win this by 2022. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.